I've got the privilege this morning, we, are, we have moved away from the Gospel of John for some time. To, today and next Sunday, we're going to look at uh, some Psalms. This morning, we're going to look particularly at Psalm 94, and next week, we'll look at Psalm 16. And then from October onwards till the, the end of the year, we're going to do a series on the life of Abraham in the book, from the book of Genesis. Uh, so we're looking forward to that as a, as a church family. But this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm... 94. Let me just pray before we uh, get underway this morning. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, this morning we ask as we come under your word that you will still our hearts you will take the distractions away from our mind as we concentrate on your words, on your encouragements, on the truth that you continually give us through your word. Father, we pray that your spirit will be at work within our hearts to encourage us, to comfort us, to refine us, to challenge us, to exhort us to be your people. We pray these things in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. I reckon if you're sort of anything like me, um, and probably more due to the, the Holy Spirit's work within your heart, you become really indignant and really upset when you see evil people prospering. Is anybody with me on that? Like, when you see evil and you see wickedness abounding, does that get to the gut of your soul and, and you get upset by that? Yeah, I'm like that. It does. It does upset me. And it gets me thinking, right, when, when I do get in that sort of situation. And it gets me to wonder, is God really dealing with this? Or is God just at a distance allowing things to occur? See, you know that in His character that God is perfectly just. You know that in His character that He's perfectly righteous. And yet you see, those who ignore him, those who blaspheme his name, they seem to prosper. You wonder where, where God is when the innocent are killed and murdered. Sometimes wonder where, where God is when the wicked attempt to remove your freedom as, as you live your life and, and step with your belief system. You, you see corrupt politicians launder money for gain and get away with it. You hear of dictators killing the innocent. And even in our own country, we observe 
our lawmakers disregarding the rights of the unborn and the disadvantaged. Laws which are covertly labelled as protection for our children, when in reality these laws are, are morally corrupt, they propagate gender fluidity and sexual diversity. How can that be a law that protects your children? These laws tend to remove the role of godly, biblical parenting. And in effect, they're trying to destroy the very kernel of society, which is the family and procreation. So we have, that's the, that's the soup in which we live, if you like. So how then, as followers of Christ, do we respond to the challenges of living in a world where right has become wrong, left has become right, and we daily face the consequences of evil? Because that's the question, isn't it? How do we respond? Do we become a, a revolutionary? Do we become antagonistic towards those who propagate the things that are so upsetting? Or do we just become completely passive in our approach? See, the heart of these types of issues is how can we calm our own troubled souls amidst the ongoing evil that is in this world? How do we avoid the anxiety that creeps in and controls our hearts because we see the overwhelming impact of evil? These are the questions that we ask. And I'm so thankful that Scripture provides the answers to these complex things. I'm so thankful that we can turn to this particular psalm today, Psalm 94. And I've got to be kind of honest, I did not know a lot about this psalm until I started thinking through what I would be preaching on about four or six weeks ago. And I started reading through the psalms and I was captivated by this particular psalm. Because even though it was written many, many centuries ago, the psalm provides some timeless truth when it, we attempt to correlate the injustices of this world. The psalm provides some timeless truth as we attempt to correlate the injustices of this world. Charles Persian has said about this psalm that it's another instance of a good man perplexed by the prosperity of the ungodly. The psalmist, however, cheers his heart by remembering that there is, after all, a king in heaven by whom all things are overruled for good. You see, the Psalms are, are very unique, aren't they? How many of us have taken great comfort and consolation from the Psalms? We have all done that through times of trouble, distress and despair. We read these Psalms because 
The Psalms, unlike other scripture, contain personal expressions of faith in God by the psalmist. These are personal expressions of of people's faith about who God is and what he does and, and how he works in the world. And they also contain the personal responses by those people to God's self-revelation of who he is. While at the same time, it's amazing that these prayers, these songs, these laments, these, these praises, which are offered to God by human beings, must also be understood as God's word to us. Albeit in an indirect sense. I think today's psalm, as we look at Psalm 94, could be described in two different ways. It's either an impeccatory psalm. You say, what's an impeccatory psalm? Well, an impeccatory psalm is one of those classic psalms where, where man calls out to God to judge the enemies. Or it could even be considered a lament psalm, where there's a crying out to God for help. I'll let you guys determine that as we read through it. You can decide, oh, this is impeccable, or this is lament, or there may be some other category. The category doesn't really matter. What we see is the heart of the psalmist as he pours his heart out to God. We don't know who the author of Psalm 95 is, 94. And uh, so I'll just refer to him as the psalmist today. And we don't really know when the psalm was written. Uh, we can take a guess at its writing. If you know anything about the Psalms, right? Psalms are, how many Psalms are there? 150. How many books are there of the Psalms? Oh, five. Right? As you look through the Psalms, you'll see book one, first 41 Psalms, book two starts at Psalm 42, etc. So it's the fourth book that Psalm uh, 94 is in. So that would tend to suggest that Psalm 94 was brought together at some time after Israel had been exiled. So you could make an assumption that the writing of the psalm took a place around the time that the nation was either in Babylon or beyond. This morning I'm going to um, read from the NET, the New English Translation, as well as the English Standard Version. I've sort of melded them together. Uh, and to help you out, it's going to be on the screen, so you can follow, follow with me. And we're going to split the psalm into six parts. And I think that's going to help us understand this part of God's word. So let's, um, let's read together the first part of this psalm. Psalm 94, by an unknown psalmist. O Lord, the God who avenges. O God who avenges, reveal your splendor. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Pay back the proud. O Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? Very simple plea. The psalmist is obviously in a situation. He sees what's going on around about him and he cries out to God. It's simple to understand what the psalmist wants here, right? 
It's not a mystery. He wants God to avenge. He wants God to judge the wicked. Very clearly seen. He addresses the Lord. O Lord, we see him addressing God as the covenant-keeping God. He's using the name that we would say is Yahweh, which means God in his steadfast love keeps his promises for his people. And he uses that term, O Lord. You see, he uses it twice in these first three verses. And throughout the psalm, it's a constant refrain of how he relates to God. He said, Lord... You are the avenger. You are the one who avenges. Rise up and judge the earth. Pay back the proud. You see, when you talk about vengeance, it's something we don't talk about often today. We see plenty of it go on in society. But what role does God have in vengeance or avenging? You see, the concept of divine vengeance must be understood in the light of the Old Testament teaching about it. And particularly two things come into mind when you think about God and vengeance. It's firstly his holiness and his justice. His holiness and his justice are in balance against man the sinner. And that's what vengeance is about. God's wrath or God's vengeance needs to be satisfied against sin. In this situation, though, the psalmist is crying out and he's saying, I'm, I'm seeing things around about me. I'm seeing the wicked. I'm seeing the proud. And how long can they celebrate? How long can they just rejoice in their wickedness, Lord? I don't see your balancing act of, of holiness and justice playing out here. And he cries out, And we've always got to balance God's vengeance with his mercy and his love and his grace. They must be balanced because God is perfect in both. And I think sometimes we, we, we take a view of the avenging God and we apply a human rationale to that. We can't do that because God is perfectly balanced in both. His vengeance and his mercy. Why else would we have the cross? Why else would we have the cross unless God was perfectly balanced? See, the the psalmist cries out to God to avenge because he knows that God cannot be true to his character of holiness and justice if he allows, allows sin to continue in its rebellion. Or to go unpunished. And this is also a fundamental truth which applies to New Testament, right? What is one of the primary purposes of the cross? One of the primary results of the cross is that God's wrath is satisfied against the sinner because Jesus has taken our sin. He is our sin bearer.
And the psalmist here, without referring to the cross, but referring to God's character, knows that this has got to be in balance. He wants God to meter out justice by doing so. This displays to his people God's glory. Notice that, please, in the, in the verses. His appeal is based on the fact that he wants God to reveal his splendor. O Lord, the God who avenges, O God who avenges, reveal your splendor. Reveal your holiness. Reveal your majesty. As you deal justly with the wicked. In the Old Testament, there are two ways in which God takes vengeance with regard to his people. You have in this psalm, he he avenges his people in the sense that he becomes their champion against the common enemy. As we read through the psalm, that's what we'll see. The psalmist cries out, champion this vengeance because we have a common enemy. In Psalm 90, uh, secondly, we'll see that, that God will provide vengeance with even his own covenant people, with the nation. Leviticus 26, 24 to 25 tells us that, that when disobedience occurs, then justice needs to be meted out. We come through to you and I now and it should cause our hearts to rejoice that if you have your faith and trust in Christ, there is no vengeance. God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath has been placed on Christ. So we see in this appeal that psalmist is basing his appeal on the inward turmoil that has arisen within his soul as he observes what's going on around about him. He sees the godless and the wicked prospering. It's kind of interesting also as I talked about where this psalm is grouped. It's actually grouped amongst Psalm 90 to 99, part of book 4. Outside Psalm 94 and 92, all those other psalms talk about God as being king. And it's talking about how the people should respond to the fact that God is king. That he reigns over all the earth. And I think contextually, why are these psalms placed amongst here, 92 and 94, particularly 94 as we look here, because he's trying to deal with the current situation among his people, which is keeping them from recognizing that God is king. That's why it's grouped here, I believe. He's giving them a warning. Keep looking to God, your king. The other thing I observe in this plea, and this is something which I just want to share with you, it's a real plea of boldness, right? The psalmist obviously has a deep relationship with his God because he cries out to him in a way which, for me personally, is quite unusual. Because of his relationship with his Lord, there is nothing off limits. There's nothing out of bounds for his plea. 
Because this is not a mild request. It's a deep longing of the soul. This is not just a, a, a mild petition. It's a desperate cry. You see, when I grew up, I grew up in a tradition where you were taught that you would never question God. Because if you did, that would show in some way a disrespect for God. Right? I grew up in a tradition that you were never to show emotion. You definitely would never tell God what you think. I'm sure many of you have grown up in the same sort of tradition, right? But you know what? As a son and daughter of the Most High God, it's okay to pour out your heart to Him. It's okay to pour out your heart to your loving Father. It's okay to call out to God with boldness. Especially when you're going through trials. Especially when you're going through things you just do not understand. Whether it's health issues, whether it's material issues, whether it's emotional issues. Cry out to God. He's listening. He actually gives you His Spirit within you to comfort you, to guide you. to reveal himself to you. It's just another observation. So after this plea, what happens? Well, he starts to define the wicked. You see in the start of the plea, uh, pay back the proud. How long will the wicked, how long will the wicked celebrate? And now he describes what these wicked are like. They spew out threats and speak defiantly. All the evildoers boast. Oh Lord, They crush your people. They oppress the nation that belongs to you. They kill the widow and the one residing outside the native land, and they murder the fatherless. Then they say, the Lord does not see this. The God of Jacob does not take notice of it. He describes the wicked in this way, as as a people who are celebrating their success of of crushing people. They are boasting and they're speaking defiantly of their deeds. And here their oppression is, is particularly heavy on three groups of people, on widows, on resident aliens, and on orphans. Verse 6 tells us that. They kill the widow and the one residing outside the native land, which means a resident alien, someone who's not an Israelite, somebody who, who's come into the land. So you could say that is actually racism at its highest. And they murder the fatherless, the killing the orphans. You see, right throughout the Old Testament, God has said you need to protect and care for the widows, the aliens, and the orphans. And the psalmist highlights that in their evil heart that they 
are maligning and gloating about the fact that this is what is happening. And not only that, what else do we see about the wicked here? What else do we see? Verse 7. What does that say to us? Then they say, the Lord does not see this. The God of Jacob does not take notice of it. are deluded, totally and utterly deluded because they believe that God does not hear or see and worse than that, they don't even believe God exists. This is how the wicked are defined. It's amazing, isn't it? This psalm was written some 3,000 years ago probably. (laughs) Delusion about God does not change. Delusion about God does not change. It's just not an ancient problem. I think we could describe it as a modern phenomena. Just to add a little bit of weight to this, just turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll talk about Romans chapter 1 because Paul addresses the same thing a, few, a thousand years later. Where he talks about the wicked... And he summarizes the plight of the wicked in the following way. I'll just abridge this for you. So let's look at Romans 1.21. And we'll go down to 28 just with a few comments. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's Paul's take on the wicked. What's the result? God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. So whether ancient or near, the wicked are deluded. They hate God. Their pride and their arrogance and their defiance is always against God. So you can get a measure of why the psalmist is a little upset. (laughs) I get it. Then he goes on. He talks about the folly of the wicked. Or the foolishness. He's described what the wicked are like, and now he, he, this is beautiful. This is about one of the only times in the Psalms that we, we have a psalmist saying, well, this is what you're actually like. Take notice of this, you ignorant people. He's addressing the wicked. You fools, when will you ever understand? Does the one who makes the human ear not hear? Does the one who forms the human eye not see? Does the one who disciplines the nations not punish? All rhetorical questions, right? Three rhetorical questions. How can the creator of the universe who's made your ear not hear? How can the creator of the universe who has given you eyes not see? How can the creator of the universe who disciplines the nations not meter out justice? He is the one verse 10, 
who imparts knowledge to human beings. The Lord knows that people's thoughts are morally bankrupt. It's amazing. The psalmist, almost in a prophet-like way, now addresses the wicked. Ignorant people and fools could also be translated dungerheads. I love that when I came across that. You dungerheads. There's a new word for you this week. You can probably say that only with your breath and no one actually know what you're talking about, right? The dungerhead. They're proud, they're evildoers, and they are described in verses 2 to 7 as we've read. That's what their, their acts are. And now the psalmist addresses them using very strong language. Dungerheads, brutes, or fools, or ignorant people. Take your choice. And through these series of rhetorical questions, he utters the sober warning. You see the warning in these questions? He affirms that God is the creator. He is the one who know, who forms the ear and the eye. He is all-knowing. He knows your thoughts. All knowledge and wisdom are from God. God hears the arrogant words of the wicked. He sees their wicked ways and he knows their thoughts and intentions. The psalmist leaves us with no misconception that only a fool would assume that, the, that God, the creator of all humankind, would be de- deterred from knowledge of those things which are crushing his people. Because God is a close and intimate God, and he is our creator. Only a fool would assume that there is no God. Only a fool will worship the creature rather than the creator. Only a fool will observe the claims of Christ and the eternal salvation that he offers and reject this truth. Only a sinner whose heart is hardened rationalizes away from the personal creator God and says there is no God. So that's his plea to the wicked. An explanation of the folly of the wicked. They are fools. And now the psalm transitions. This is the problem, if you like. This is the plea, and these are the people who are the problem. This is the thing he's trying to rationalize. How can these people prosper? How can they succeed? And he turns to assurance for those of us who trust God. Verse 12, How blessed is the one whom you instruct, O Yahweh, the one whom you teach from your law, in order to protect him from times of trouble until the wicked are destroyed. Certainly the Lord does not forsake his people. He does not abandon the nation that belongs to him, for justice will prevail. And all the morally upright will be vindicated. He affirms the security of those who trust in God. These verses can be explained in no other way than just a a beautiful encouragement for those of us who trust 
in God. The blessed person is one who has God-given happiness. We'll talk about that a little bit further. Blessing here is tied to obedience because we see if you're instructed in the law and you take, uh, and we're talking law not as in Ten Commandments, we're talking the Word of God. When you're instructed in that and take comfort from that, you are protected from times of trouble. When the believer obeys God's word, when the believer is immersed in the promises of God, then there is this complete assurance. There is this complete knowledge that justice will prevail and they will know that God, because of his perfect character, will provide perfect justice and peace. And this knowledge leads to three things. This knowledge leads to three things as outlined in this psalm protection and security. In this particular psalm, it was a physical protection away from the wicked. Protection and security means you are not alone in your battle. The Spirit of God for us aids us in that. Another outcome of this knowledge is that judgment will occur and justice will prevail. The psalmist is reassuring his listeners that this is based on his own personal experience. He teaches out of his own reflection on confrontations with wrongdoers. <coughs> and he reflects even further in the next verses by using two rhetorical questions. Who will rise up to defend me against the wicked? Good question, right? Who will stand up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not helped me, I would have laid down in the silence of death. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart were many, your consolations cheer my soul. What is the, the psalmist's assurance here? The Lord helps him. The Lord's steadfast love holds him up. And the Lord's consolations fill his soul with joy. What's a consolation? better word would be comfort. The Lord's comfort fills his soul with joy. He sees the wicked. He pleads. And he comes back to the knowledge of who God is. And he says, my God helps me. Notice the past tense of it. If the Lord had not helped me, I would have died. I would have been defeated. I would have slipped. I would have doubted you. I would have doubted the things and promises of God if you had not helped me. 
But when I was about to slip, your steadfast love came through. And I realized who I was in you. And you held me up. And you cared deeply. Even when I was full of anxiety, that's what that means, when the cares of my heart are many. When I'm deeply concerned about what is going on around about me, about my circumstances, about this lack of injustice which I see. You comfort me. He has received divine comfort. And the result of this divine comfort, I don't know how this works, but the result of it is joy deep within the soul. The inner being is transformed. And the question is, can we testify in the same way when anxiety and worry floods our souls? He's not condemning anxiety or worry, is he? But he is giving the solution, the balance to anxiety and worry and the fact, focus on his God's steadfast love, focus on the fact that he holds you, you're secure in him and nothing that this world can throw at you is going to change your position in him. We become overwhelmed with our lack of control over our circumstances or do we rest in the character of God? That's the question. The psalmist testifies that when in, in this place of anxiety, we need, we need to rest on the character of God. We need to rest on his steadfast love. We need to rest on his ever-present help in our times of trouble. That's consolation of the soul. When you're going through difficulty health-wise, rest on the fact that you are his and even though your days on this earth may be limited you've got an eternal weight of glory to come with him and you consider a career choice and those sorts of things don't worry through the issues of those choices Because God is your ever-present help. Ever-present help. That doesn't mean he comes and goes on on whim or will. He is always there. This is the life of faith that the psalmist is talking about. It's faith and trust in him who supplies all our needs. In him who knows all things. In him who loves us so deeply that he sent his son to atone for our sin. And then the psalm concludes. And we see the situation of the oppression and danger described again, and we see the answer to the plea. Cruel rulers are not your allies. Those who make oppressive laws, they conspire against the blameless and condemn to death the innocent. That's just another cry, just talking about what the wicked are doing. But the Lord, notice the but, notice the contrast, but the Lord has become my stronghold. And my God, the rock of my refuge, he will pay them back for their sin. He will destroy them because of their evil. The Lord, our God, will destroy them. Look at the hope here. 
The psalmist has, has gone back to the plea at the start and he's concluded the plea. Why am I concerned? Because the Lord is my stronghold. He is the rock of my refuge and he will act accordingly to his character. So often we forget that. So as we've seen through Psalm 94, the, psalm firstly, the psalmist firstly cries out to God, showing his relationship and dependence upon God's sovereign and righteous actions. God, who is perfectly just and perfectly righteous, will judge the unrighteous. That principle has not changed, folks. If you aren't a follower of Christ, that principle applies. God will perfectly judge the unrighteous. Based on what? The person and work of Christ. There is only one standard. But what a wonderful news for those who trust in the unfailing love of the Lord. You will be protected and defended. Realize that today. That no matter what you're going through, you are protected and defended by the Lord of the universe. The believer will never be abandoned because God's love and mercies are new every morning. Even when we are full of anxiety and doubts, God's promises and consolations and comforts fuel the fire of our soul. He will comfort us in our times of trouble. And he is the rock of our refuge. You know what? The evildoers will stand before God and give an account for the acts they have performed. This is what the psalm tells us. They will. The righteous, those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ, will stand before God and God will judge us based on what? Jesus and what he has done and upon his perfect work upon his sacrifice for your sin and you know what? there is now no condemnation None whatsoever. Romans 8 verse 1. Take this with you this week. As you see all the evil stuff that goes on around about you, as you call out to God, I hope you call out to God and ask for his justice to prevail. But realize you, when you are secure in Christ, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. What a saviour.